Today's passage comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 10. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was having coffee uh, just around the corner from the church, and I'm sitting there with this older man who I've admired and respected for quite some time, but this is the first time I've ever actually spoken to him face to face. And we're having this really pleasant conversation about God and church and all of those sorts of things. And then he said something that totally caught me off guard. He said, wow, you know, it seems like God's up to some really exciting stuff around here. And then he just looked off in the distance and paused for a second, he said, then again, you religious types tend to be dishonest. I mean, I imagine if you were watching pornography last night, it wouldn't come up in this conversation. And then he went on to ask me this question that's really stayed with me. He said, Tyler, what part of yourself are you afraid to look at in God's presence? And when he asked me that question, a scene immediately flashed before my mind of a couple of weeks prior to this coffee when uh, I was giving my one and two-year-old sons a bath. Uh, they were one and two at this time, and there was just two of them at this time. So there's Simon, the one-year-old, had been crying loudly enough for long enough that my brain had gone numb at this point. And finally, I figured out the formula that in the bathtub with his passy in his mouth, he was happy for a moment. And when that happened, I turned to get the soap so, so that I could give him a bath. And when I did, Hank, the two-year-old, ripped the passy out of his mouth and just threw it across the bathroom and started cracking up. And I was so frustrated. So that when I went to rinse uh, Hank off, I, I scooped water in a cup out of the bathtub and I threw it down on his head with aggression. That was water, so it didn't hurt him, but he could feel the aggression that was in me and he looked up at me with this look of fear gripped on his face. And it so terrified me to see him looking at me like that, that I just picked him up out of the bathtub, like dripping and soaking wet, and I held him, and I was like, I'm so sorry, buddy. I am so sorry. Because all of a sudden it was occurring to me, he's two. 
I'm on the verge of completely losing myself at a two-year-old. I am finding a way to physically express the aggression that I feel at a two-year-old. And I've been haunted since by that expression on his face because what came out of me then scared him, but it also scared me. And what if that comes out of me again and again and again? And what if one day he's talking about me when he's 30 and he's talking about the dad I turned out to be, not the dad that I want to be? Like I had a pretty okay dad, except. So I described that scene to Ken, this older man who asked me that question. And I said, I'm ashamed to bring that part of myself into God's presence because I'm afraid of what I saw in myself that day. And I'm afraid that God won't heal that part of me. And I'm afraid that it will come out of me again, but the consequences will be higher the next time. And from the deep recesses of my willpower, I cannot seem to be the dad I want to be all the time or even most of the time. So how about you? What part of yourself are you afraid to look at in God's presence? You see, what I'm talking about when I ask that question is what theologians typically call the false self. And it's gone by a whole bunch of different names throughout biblical history, but the concept of two distinct ways of being in the world as a true self and as a false self is a massive theme throughout scripture. The false self is this catch-all term we use today for what the New Testament often calls the old self or the flesh and what the Psalms describe as chaff driven by the wind and what Genesis just named as fig leaves. God is love, says 1 John, but the absence then of love is fear, which is why in the very same breath, John continues, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. What is fear? (laughs) Fear is the compulsive desire to project the perfect image. It's the way that I convince myself internally of something I would never say out loud. Like what you say about who I am is more defining than what God says about who I am. And so I pamper the the most surface version of myself so that I can appear a certain way while the deepest parts of me go completely neglected. Like I spend all morning trying on different outfits and then just a moment or two in prayer Or I talk with confidence about my next big step during the day, but then I lie awake in anxiety over my career trajectory at night. Or I tinker with every word in next week's quarterly report, but I barely put pen to paper in my journal. Fear is that definition of success that I carry with me, always chasing, always trying to live up to, even though that definition of success found me far more than I found it. In fact, I'm not even sure when I adopted it or if it's what I most truly want. Fear is the glimpse I catch of my own reflection in the elevator uh, mirror at my office building. It's that time when I'm having a great day, I'm so free and alive, and then I see my reflection and suddenly I have regret over treating myself to ice cream last night. And now I'm making deals with myself about what I'll eat today and how I'll live this week in order to make up for it. It's those times when you look in the mirror and you bite the inside of your cheeks just to see what you might look like if you lost a few pounds. Fear is the preoccupation we have with the approval of others. It's the way I keep checking my phone after I do something well. Like I sent in that report and honestly it was fire. And so now I'm watching for the affirmation of my colleagues to show up in my inbox. 
It's the Instagram post you make on your anniversary and then the way that you keep checking your phone to see what other people are saying about your anniversary rather than spending it with the person you took the photo with across from you at dinner. It's the obsessive pursuit of experiences to furnish the empty rooms of my inner life. It's the ambient hum of FOMO that goes forever beneath the surface. What are they doing without me? What am I missing out on? Who am I if I don't have a next adventure to look forward to? Fear's the role that you have that makes you feel valuable that dug its talons deep into your value so that you don't know who you are if you lose it. And then your kids grow up and move out or the department gets dissolved and you get laid off or, or the numbers start to go backwards while you were strategizing growth. Did you know that statistically suicide rates skyrocket at retirement age? Right when the roles that we use to define us are taken from us or are given up. Do you see yourself anywhere in that definition yet? The sociologist Alain de Botton says, we are all crazy in some way. The crucial question at the depth of any relationship is not, is he crazy? It is, what are the ways you are crazy? What parts of your life have been blocked by fear? How exactly do you self-destruct? In what ways have you not been loved? See, there's endless varieties of the expression, but it's fear, not love, motivating each one. The false self is the identity born in each of us out of fear, not love. And the false self is an identity that starts growing in us before we even have the vocabulary to name it. Uh, our parents react to us in certain ways in our formative years that our tiny little brains uh, process as mommy won't love you unless you eat your veggies or make the cast of the Christmas pageant or include your sister or be a good little girl. Daddy won't love you unless you get a hit in Little League or bring home a good report card or clean your room. See, in most cases, parents don't say those sorts of things directly and would be horrified if they knew that that throwaway glance or that time that they were distracted or that one off-the-cuff comment was interpreted that way in the tiny developing mind of their child, but our little forming brains cannot take the nuance and the seed of the false self is planted. I am the middle child of three boys born to the greatest, most relationally involved, emotionally healthy parents that anyone could ask for. But birth order matters. I see it in my own children as they're growing up. My, my three boys are growing up in my home. So I'm the middle child of three boys who grew into an adult who frequently struggles with attaching my identity to achievement, who at worst prioritizes productivity over people, and who looks for affirmation uh, as a means of security and value. Classic, right? Well, how did that happen? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that it might have something to do with this, that when I was a kid, I found a little bit of success in sports. And sports then became the place that my parents' attention was given to me where it was not shared. It was the place that I could be the center of attention. I achieved and it got me love that didn't have to be shared. I think that's got something to do with it. And I'll never forget the story of an elderly nun who had served faithfully all her days, and then at 78, in response to a guest speaker at a seminar, she shows up to this guest speaker's hotel door at three in the morning and knocks. And he opens the door and she confesses to him that she's never told anyone this her entire life, but when she was five years old, her father used to climb into bed with her with no clothes on. And then she goes on to tell about a childhood of abuse 
that she had buried and seven decades later finally brings it into the light that she might be healed. You see, the false self feeds on everything from the innocence of a kid receiving praise from his parents to a young girl who is victimized and abused by hers. And those are not equally severe experiences, not even close, but both can become soil that the false self grows within. And the false self then grows and matures as we do, and it leaps out of us when we introduce ourselves. Lance uh, showed up to my office mid-morning on a Tuesday, and he sat on the cheap, cracked, bonded leather sofa that was in that office in New York City. Now, he was the vice president of a successful nonprofit that combated and served women who had been victimized by uh, sex trafficking. And then years into that role, he knew that it was time for him to move on, time to entrust that role to someone else, time for him to take the next step. Last night, he had been celebrating an incredible run in an amazing organization. This morning, he's having a panic attack. He's struggling to breathe through the anxiety because he's asking, what am I going to say when someone asks me, so what do you do? Because I've gotten used to my answer. Oh, I'm the VP of, and I like my answer. I like what it makes you think about me, and I like the follow-up questions that it provokes, and I like the identity that it cloaks me in in that moment. I'm so identified with this cause and this role that I know it's time to let it go, but I don't know who I am if I let it go. And a couple of weeks ago, I sat across from a friend from this community while he talked about that same question talked about the desire to avoid meeting new people, even cringing at coming to church because he's always asked, well, what do you do? And that's a, a question that for him produces a tidal wave of shame because he's currently unemployed. And somewhere along the way, uh, he learned that his whole person it gets attached to his vocation, his career, his doing or lack of doing. So what do you do? Everyone, in response to that question, either puffs their chest out or turtles inward because it inflates or deflates our ego based on how we relate to our response. How do you introduce yourself? What do you want people to think about you? By what you have or how you look or who you're with or who you know or what you do? See, the false self can be many things, but it's always an identity that I acquire outside of myself. It is the accumulation of wealth or accomplishment or reputation or adventure or power or a smug certainty that I don't fit into any of those boxes. I am completely and entirely unique. The false self is forever chasing the next upgrade to my home or my technology or my wardrobe. The false self is after the next achievement to my resume or my portfolio or my athletic prowess. The false self is taking Instagram-worthy photos of my adventure, backpacking, or sunbathing, or city hopping. It is obsessing over my appearance because what, after all, is the abundant life of self-forgetfulness, godfulness, and other-centeredness compared with the expiring delight of looking like a model? <laughs> See, the false self is the identity that we all carry that wasn't given to us at first, but was acquired somewhere along the way. God is love. That is good news with a dark shadow. The good news is that you are loved. You are loved right now without qualification or restriction. You're loved in a way that you cannot lose. The dark shadow is that you also find that love hard to believe and even harder to trust. 
Your instinct will forever be to try to drum up your own lovableness, to become lovable in your own eyes in the way that you already are in God's. The good news there is called grace, the dark shadow is called sin, and the whole of the biblical story is wedged between those two forces. In fact, the whole of your personal story is wedged between those two forces. And the psychologist David Benner says, the false self is the tragic result of trying to steal something from God that we did not have to steal. Had we dared to trust God's goodness, we would have discovered that everything we could ever most deeply long for would be ours in God. Trying to gain more than the everything God offers, we end up with less than nothing. We become a false self. The false self is whatever you try to, to do to drum up your own lovableness. It is, a, it is one disease, but it's got all kinds of different strands. Albert Haas, in his book, Coming Home to Your True Self, summarizes the false self in what he calls the 10 empty Ps, which I find totally cheesy and wildly helpful. They are pleasure, praise, power, prestige, position, popularity, people, productivity, possessions, and perfection. Now, what are all of those? They are a means of acquiring identity outside of the self. They're an attempt to steal something from God that I did not have to steal. And the more successful you are at cultivating that identity, the stronger its grip on you. In fact, one of the ways to take your own temperature, one of the ways to gauge, have I been living from the true or the false self lately, is just to ask yourself this question, how much do I care about the things I care about? Because the false self or the ego, it erodes care for people and passion to sacrifice and to love. To, to the, it's, it erodes the unhurried ability to listen well to a friend or to laugh with your children or to weep at the pain of another or to pray for a neighbor. You see, when the good things that once burned in you have begun to dim, when we stop caring about the things that we care about, that's a signal that we've been living from the false self. In the words of Mark Buchanan, we have let ourselves be consumed by things that feed the ego, but starve the soul. And that's what these 10 empty Ps are. They are names for things that feed the ego, but starve the soul. And look, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but the Enneagram, whose origins are traced back to the Christian tradition in the Desert Fathers and Mothers, was not originally a tool for self-discovery, it was a tool for sin discovery. That's why the unique thing about the Enneagram is that every type is rooted in a core fear. It's not a way of excusing my personality, like, oh, well, I'm just a four, so that's why I act that way. Or, or a tool for defining someone else, like, you are such a seven, man. It's, it's, it's a tool for naming the various masks that the false self wears so that we might take them off. And if that insight makes you want to overcome and achieve and get past your Enneagram type, you're totally a three. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Now what I'm offering you here is not just an expose on the inner life. You see, the roots of the false self are internal, but the fruit is external. 
the inner movements of the false self are always then manifested in outward action. So if we just go back to those same 10 Ps, take for example, pleasure. That may live within you as a constant desire for the next experience, but it's expressed outwardly as an inability to be content and fully present with another person in the ordinary moments. Or, or possessions, that's an insistence on a sense of security that I can create for myself. But then it gets expressed outwardly as withholding generosity that would bless both the recipient and the giver more than storing up and acquiring my own safety. You see, the false self is a personal enemy with communal destruction. Because when you come in and out of the family of God wearing the mask of the false self, you rob us all of grace. You perpetuate a lie both within you and within us. And perhaps this is at least part of what Jesus was getting at when he said, whoever is not for me is against me. That there is no neutral ground. You are always either furthering the curse or furthering renewal, even in your unconscious thoughts and your unseen attachments. And there is no more clever mask that the false self wears than the mask called spirituality. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoa, wait, didn't we speak prophecy in your name and cast out demons in your name, work miracles in your name? And that's on a small list. I never knew you. That's Jesus talking. And Jesus seems to be saying that this one disguise, maybe the most detestable disguise the false self wears is that of religiosity or moralism. Because when the false self is channeled into religion, it's a disease you can have for years with no symptoms, so that by the time you finally get the diagnosis, this thing has spread to the point of, being, of needing surgery. I once sat under the counsel of an older, wiser pastor, and I'll never forget him saying to me, I don't know the degree to which I serve the church out of selfless love and the degree to which I use the church to massage my own ego. All I know for sure is that both of those are in me. And I can remember him saying that verbatim because I know that that is in me too. I mean, even just take right now, for example, what we're all doing right now. I'm standing in front of you and I am preaching out of selfless love for you. I, I want to introduce you more to Jesus. I want you to come more alive in him. I want you to follow more radically after him because I think that's the, the way to the life that is truly life. And I'm standing in front of you preaching out of real self-interest in me. Because I want you to affirm me in your facial expressions and response to what I'm saying. Uh, I, I want you to perceive me as successful but also winsome so it seems like the success is coming naturally, not like I'm trying very hard, right? <laughs> Any nerves that I might have felt as the teaching text was being read did not emerge out of compassion for you. They came out of self-interest in me. But that just gives you a lay of the land. Here's where it actually gets really interesting. I also possess the subconscious ability to know that self-interest is unflattering and selfless love is quite admirable. So I have this unconscious ability to project the selfless love and to hide the self-interest. So, so right there, even as I'm talking to you about Jesus, you've got love, selfishness, and deception all swirling around within me all at the same time. And acknowledging the presence of the unattractive too does not make them go away. It just names the ingredients of the inner cocktail that lives in me. In the last year, I've needed the Father's voice reminding me who I am more than any other year in my life because the false self feasts on year one in a public role. 
because some of you are in the honeymoon stage and you think this guy is the best because <laughs> I haven't disappointed you yet, yet, but year two is coming. And for others of you, I'm the stepdad who started dating your mom and then she sat down with you after a bunch of dates had already happened to tell you it had gotten serious. And now here I am at the family dinner table and you've got your arms crossed. You're just like, whatever, man, I'm never calling you dad. <laughs> and neither of those, the idealized version or the resisted version is the true identity that I've been given by the father. And so it's been exponentially important for me in these days to make sure that it's his voice that I'm drawing my identity from and not yours. So we're in this series right now that we've uh, titled The True and the False Self. And up to this point, it has been filled with, with promise. We talked about this invitation to move from intellectual belief to yada, to experiential and relational knowledge. And then we talked about knowing God's true identity and then knowing the true self. But here is the turn in the series from love to fear. Because if we're gonna know and experience all this love we've been talking about, then we are going to have to know and recognize the counterside to love, and that's fear. And that brings us to the false self, which is not so much a Christian doctrine as it is just an honest personal assessment. I mean, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and secular humanists all agree on the diagnosis. Freud, Plato, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, and Jesus all find agreement here that there's something wrong both with the world out there and with me in here. Uh, the, the place that they all splinter in different directions is the false self. What is it and where does it come from? Johannes Hartle asked that question this way, what lurks in the hearts of men and how does God deal with it? And that is the big question for today. And I wanna break it down for you like this, sin, fig leaves, and undressing in public, okay? So first, there's something wrong with the world. Every culture, society, and philosophy, and history has all agreed on that part. Uh, if what's wrong with the world though is outside of me, then I can fix it. If it's a disparity in education, then I can get the right information to the right people and we can all become enlightened and live happily ever after. Or if what's wrong with the world is an imbalance of power, then I can elect the right people and I can restructure broken systems and I can redistribute power equally and everything will be all right. Or if it's a lack of resources, I can work tirelessly to provide opportunity and necessities and prosperity across every square inch of the globe, and then we can live together in, in the new humanity. And I'm all for all of those things, but if what's wrong with the world is outside of me and inside of me, then that makes me just a terminally ill patient throwing on a stethoscope to play doctor. And if the problem is inside of me, then there's a deeper kind of healing that's needed than what I can provide to the world around me. Sin is the biblical word for a problem that is both outside and inside. And I wanted to define sin for you in both a word and a picture. So first in a word, sin, the definition that I give it is an attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. So understood biblically, sin is not to step outside of invisible moral lines that God drew on top of the world, it's to try to be my own God. And that means sin begins with desire, good desire. It is to try to provide something good for myself 
like intimacy or satisfaction or safety by means that I can control and that never works. Sin is a good desire paired with the wrong method that always results in pain. So for example, I wanna feel safe. That's a good desire. But then instead of going to God and search for that safety through his affirmation, I turn to resources that I can control. I build my own safety up through the affirmation of other people and that results in me being one person at work and another person with my faith community and another person with my family at home and another person with my friendships. I become a chameleon who adapts, who's lost myself by reshaping who I am to every environment so that your affirmation makes me feel safe. And over time, I become a slave to that pattern in the language of Jesus. And that is sin. It's an attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. It's a good desire paired with the wrong method that always results in pain. Let me give you a picture. The main word that the New Testament uses for sin is the Greek hamartia. Can you say that? Now, that literally means to miss the mark. So it's a word picture. So when you hear the word sin, you should picture an arrow and a target and someone drawing back an arrow, aiming it directly at a bullseye, but then when they let it go, the arrow veers off so far that it misses the target altogether. And the problem is the arrow, not the archer. It's that there's a bend in the arrow so that if you try to get to that destination by this method, it's not going to land you where you've aimed yourself. The problem isn't that you've aimed in the wrong place. The problem is that you've chosen the wrong arrow to take you there. And that's sin. It is to miss the mark. Not because the desire is wrong, but because I'm using the wrong method, a good desire paired with the wrong method that always ends in pain. Now that we have the lay of the land, we come to fig leaves. Because the basic claim on the Bible's opening page is that God was authoring a story that was held together by perfect love, all summed up in this one phrase, naked and unashamed. But then that story just came apart at the seams because people believed a lie. This is that lie. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, so when the enemy comes to destroy the life of a woman cloaked in the father's love, he does not come with a knife, but with an idea. The, the weapons of the enemy are ideas and the spiritual battleground is the mind. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now this is the most effective kind of lie because there's seeds of truth in it. It's not an outright fallacy, it's just a bending and twisting of the truth. It's a deception. Because in Genesis 2, God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but there is this one tree that if you eat from it, it will kill you and corrupt the whole thing. And then in Genesis 3, the enemy flips that script from broad and generous to narrow and restrictive. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see what he's doing? He's flipping an offer. He's making a generous offer seem like a stingy one. He is not tempting Eve to eat the fruit. He's chipping away at her trust in God. So where there was once love and love only, the serpent introduces the possibility of fear. And when Eve responds, she takes the bait. She remembers God's voice in her life, not as generous, but as narrow, like the serpent recast it. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin this way. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And that's what the whole Genesis story about forbidden fruit and talking snakes is all about. 
Psalm 103 says, you satisfy my desires with good things. Adam and Eve stopped believing that, and so they sinned. We stop believing that too, and so we sin. And there's something technical uh, that's going on here too, but it's really important, so I wanna show it to you. In Genesis 2, God is repeatedly called Yahweh Elohim, or Lord God in English. But then when the serpent approaches Eve in Genesis 3, he just refers to God as Elohim, which is the abstract name dropping the personal part. It's kind of like calling your dad sir instead of dad. It's respectful, it's appropriate in some context maybe even, but it is totally depersonalized. So the serpent is stripping away the intimacy between Eve and God. He's taking a daughter of the father cloaked in his love and he's subtly demoting God to a helpful mentor. Someone that that you know wants the best for you, who you trust generally, but who you're also kind of cherry picking on exactly how much they can relate to you and what pieces of their advice you're taking and not. The serpent does not attack her with doubt or doesn't try to get her to deny the father's reality altogether. The serpent subtly demotes the father's role in her life. It reminds me of that one bit in Screwtape Letters, which is C.S. Lewis's allegory about the devil trying to train some new demons in the art of deception when he says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. You see, the temptation of the evil one rarely feels like an outright attack. It feels like a chipping away at my trust in God edging you and I away from the light by whatever means seems to be effective. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So after warping Eve's view of God, creating some distance between her and the father of love, the serpent then buries the lie. You can be like God. You can meet your deep needs by your own resources. And the most fascinating part, at least to me, about the original lie is this. At no point does the enemy ever tell Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. There's not a single moment when he's like, look at that apple though, you should try that thing. It probably wasn't an apple, it was probably a fig, but whatever. Look at the apple, you know? Maybe it was a watermelon. That's the most comical possibility to me. (laughs) There's no temptation toward behavior. He sows a lie, and the fruit of believing that lie is the action. The enemy is not the tempter of immoral behavior. The enemy is the father of lies. And all behaviors that hurt us are just the products of lies that we believe. The spiritual battlefield, friends, is the mind. Uh, This is why the Holy Spirit is called the advocate. And we know that the, the, the voice of the Spirit is to forever remind you of your true identity. Beloved, beloved, beloved. Because good fruit in your life emerges from that that felt belief deep within you. And it's why the enemy is called the accuser and subtly twists unconditional love into conditional performance. Generous freedom into narrow restriction. Father into mentor. Now here's the heartbreaking ending. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized they were naked. They became self-conscious. For the first time, human beings felt the need to cover up, to hide certain parts of themselves while, while showing other parts of themselves, to put on a best self, a public self. Uh, fig leaves, that was the world's first ever attempt to control perception, and since that day, we've never stopped feeling the need to do the same. 
So what Genesis calls fig leaves, we today call shame. Listen to a lie, believe a lie, act on that lie. Lies tell us who we are, but conveniently omit God from the equation, just like the serpent in Genesis did. Uh, Lies tell us how the world works without telling us about the one who made it. Lies tell us what our bodies are for without telling us that they're temples of the Holy Spirit. They they tell us, they lead us on a million well-meaning searches for love without ever pointing us to the God who is love. And the result is always shame. Now shame is a different thing than guilt. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is something is wrong with me. Guilt is about behavior. Shame is about identity. The father of lies now has what he wants. He has ripped them away from the father's love. Motivated by fear, Adam and Eve then become false selves. They go searching for an identity outside of themselves. And in all of creation, this is an exclusively human problem. We are the only created beings who struggle with identity. Uh, A spring rose blooming in Portland does not struggle with comparison to all the other roses. Right, it does not have a childhood history and wounds that it carries from its developing years that it's still trying to emerge from and live out of. It simply worships and glorifies God by being what God created it to be. In all of creation, it is human beings who believed the lie and therefore human beings who struggle to worship God by being exactly who he's created us to be. Brendan Manning says, one of the most shocking contradictions in the American church is the intense dislike many disciples of Jesus have for themselves. And the real problem with the false self is that it works, at least temporarily. Adam and Eve knew this painful cycle all too well. All too well. They cover up with something, uh, something to cover up their shame. It could be anything, anything they could get their hands on. For them, it was fig leaves. For us, it's another fix, or a compliment from the right person, or a series of good deeds that make me feel like God likes me again, or a future plan that makes today bearable. It's anything I can get my hands on to make the shame go away, and it usually works. It helps us forget that we're naked, for a moment at least. Just like I'm guessing the fig leaves worked. But what happens the second you cut a fig leaf off a tree? It starts to shrivel and die. They spend the rest of their lives cutting fig leaf after fig leaf after fig leaf after fig leaf because the false self works but it's expiring the second you put it on. And whatever you reach for to cover up your shame, you're gonna have to reach for it again and again and again and again. James Masterson says the false self plays its deceptive role, ostensibly protecting us, but doing so in a way that is programmed to keep us fearful. See, by hiding and dressing up, Adam and Eve were not protecting themselves from pain. They were defending themselves against the love of God. And that is what we do again and again in a thousand different ways. We erect defenses against the love of God. Genesis 3 does not end with a a nice bow tied right on top. This is not a Disney script. This is a real life story. And so here's how the chapter ends. He, meaning God, placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. The entrance back into the full, free, abundant life that you and I were created to live and to know is guarded. 
angels with flaming swords standing, guarding the entrance. And this brings us to our final movement, undressing in public. Would you clasp your hands together like this? This is the beginning of the biblical story. It's loving union between God and people. But here is Genesis 3. We become false selves. We lose loving union with God that allows our true self to grow and to mature. Now, how do we get back to what we lost? How does a person who has suddenly become aware that the fig leaves aren't working, that the false self is nothing more than a miserable spiral, get back to that loving union? Every major philosophy and belief system is trying to answer that question. The vocabulary changes, but that is the question. And the difference between Jesus and everybody else is every other religion or philosophy allows a way for the false self to get back to loving union with God. But only Jesus shows us a God who moves toward us. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional and actively in pursuit. God's response to sin is not to dilute holiness. So they leave the garden, walking east, clothed in shame, and the entrance back in is guarded. God does not just invite them back in and pretend it doesn't matter, but God goes with them. See, the biblical story is not one of a compromising God. It is one of a pursuing God. It's not one who dilutes the life he made. It's one who is so committed to the life he made that he comes after us everywhere that we lose ourselves. There's this incredible scene in the movie Beautiful Boy, which is the true story of a father whose son just gets himself stuck in this deep pit of drug addiction. And a couple of years in, his father hates drugs, but he will never, ever give up on his son. So there's this one scene when the dad is driving around one of the worst pockets of San Francisco at something like two in the morning in a rainstorm. Uh, he's weeping hysterically as the rain's coming down because his son is lost again. He's out on another bender. He's missing and no one knows where he is. It's another relapse, another night out doing who knows what with who knows who. And the false self wins then when we lose ourselves, when we forget who we were made to be. So here's this dad, raw and grieving, but also determined with this righteous kind of anger that he is not closing his eyes or resting until he's found his son. His boy may have walked out again, but he will never tire of going after him. That's the scene. This grieving, determined father up at 2 a.m. in a rainstorm searching for his son, and that's the rest of the Bible in a single scene after Genesis 3:24. Because the biblical account, or I'm sorry, the biblical solution to the tragedy of the false self is not to find our way back. It's to undress ourselves. It's to take off our fig leaves. It's that you would strip yourself of every false pretension and false protection in God's presence because that's the only way you can really fully be loved. It's that you would drop all of your defenses against his love. Because his love is the only thing powerful enough to drive out fear. And that's what the life of Jesus was all about. It's about the fixed, loving gaze of God that casts out fear. Uh, the story that begins with human beings naked and unashamed before God, clothed in the sheltering gaze of his love, ends with human beings the same way, clothed in the sheltering gaze of his love, perfectly loved without a trace of fear. And in the middle, you have Jesus, the embodiment of God's pursuing love. 
Right near the beginning of the drama, all the way back in Exodus, there's this moment where we get a glimpse of human desire at its purest. When Moses says to God, I wanna see your glory. And God responds, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. In context, it's something like this. You don't know what you're asking, Mo. No one can look at my glory without dropping dead on the spot. Take that moment with you, jump ahead to the arrival of Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Oh, the glory Moses told you would kill you? I've seen it, and you have too. That's how John opens his gospel. That face, the one with, with tired bags under his eyes and a crooked nose and, and beads of sweat dripping off his forehead, the face of Jesus, that's the face Moses longed to see but was denied. And Thomas Kelly in his little book, A Testament of Devotion, has this fascinating insight where he says, in the Old Testament, no one can stand before God and live. And after resurrection, still no one can stand before God and live, only now it's the false self that dies. That every false pretension, every other way that we've dressed ourselves up and clothed ourselves, every acquired identity we've gotten along the way in the presence of God falls to his knees dead. Perfect love drives out fear. So take off your fig leaves. Bring yourself before God, not your presentable self or your productive self or your prestigious self, your naked and unashamed self, just as you are, because that's the self that he really and truly loves. You see, we take the terrifying risk of dropping our self-acquired identities that we might be clothed in his love, and that is not a one-time deal. It is the ongoing way of spiritual maturity. Again and again and again, we drop our fig leaves. We never tire of reaching and putting them on. And so again and again and again, we undress ourselves in his presence. Thomas Keating says, the spiritual journey is not a career or a success story. It is a series of humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. These made room inside us for the Holy Spirit to come in and heal. Undress yourself in the presence of God. Take off your old self and discover that you are loved. Loved right in the place of your shame and your wounds and your insecurities. Uh, loved in the place of your secrets and everything then that you hide from others. All the things that you bury while projecting other things. When you realize that God loves you in those very places, the false self falls to its knees in the presence of the loving God. So how do we know life beyond shame? We've gotta take the terrifying risk of dropping our false selves that we might be loved. Naked and unashamed. That's how we were created and it's how we are recreated. See, here's the very end of the story. Revelation 22, the last chapter in the whole of the Bible. And they shall live with his face in view and that they belong to him will show on their faces. See, the whole story for those who will accept his pursuing love uh, live forever in the gaze of love and love only, a recovery of everything that was lost. Perfect love casts out fear, so will you drop your disguise so that you can be loved? Here's all I'm trying to tell you today. The Bible is one long story about bringing my vulnerable, naked self before God and discovering that I'm loved. 
Loved without limit and without condition. Loved in a way that I, can't, that I cannot lose. Loved in a way that is so full and so overwhelming it's beyond description. Loved in a way that casts out fear. Thomas Keating, one more time. If we have not experienced ourselves as unconditional love, we have more work to do because that is who we really are. See, the problem that plunged into the human soul when Adam and Eve hid and reached for fig leaves, it's remedied only by us coming out of hiding and undressing in public. In the words of David Benner, transformation demands that we meet God in the vulnerability of our sin and shame rather than retreating to try to get on with our own self-improvement projects. But it also requires that we stay long enough in his loving presence to allow our shame to begin to melt away. For love to transform us, not only must we meet invulnerability, we also must linger long enough for it to penetrate our woundedness. Brennan Manning tells the story of a 20-day silent retreat. He took to a cabin in Colorado, and I'm gonna land here. Nothing there to distract himself with, nothing to look forward to, just 20 days alone with himself and the presence of God. It sounds terrifying, to be completely honest. And he and God had grown pretty familiar with each other at this point. He uh, had met God as an alcoholic so far at the end of his rope, it was a miracle that he was even alive. But that was pretty far in his past at this point. By the time he goes on this retreat, he's 18 years into a new vocation as a Franciscan priest. He's become a sought-after speaker and a renowned author. And he, an accomplished professional Christian, forced to be alone and undistracted with God, uh, offered this realization, which was written in his journal. The great divorce between my head and my heart had endured throughout my ministry. For 18 years, I proclaimed the good news of God's passionate, unconditional love, utterly convicted in my head, but not feeling it in my heart. I never felt loved. See, he carried a false view of himself first into alcoholism and then second into spirituality. And two decades into an objectively successful, fruitful ministry and the false self still owned him. And now, alone on a mountain with no one to become and no one to impress, God was inviting him to shed the false self that he might be loved. Years later, after living ordinary days in the intimacy won in that encounter, Manning wrote, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Spirituality is so often talked about or depicted as a journey, but Jesus gives us a different image than that, a relationship. And relationship grows by shared experience. Relationship often begins with a covenant like wedding vows, but of course the experience of those promises is then fostered in all of the ordinary moments beyond the day when you say the vows. It is the experience of failing and needing to be forgiven. It's the experience of offering the same forgiveness. It's shared time together and laughter. It's knowing one another more deeply, discovering things about one another that we didn't know the day we said the vows and still choosing them in the place of each other's imperfection. That, that's where intimacy is cultivated, when the vows get lived. And as we accumulate experience after experience after experience of the love of God, the very places of our failure and imperfection, our seemingly unbreakable patterns, intimacy begins to restore them. See, the journey back to our true self, it's not a journey at all. There is no map and there is no destination, it's a relationship. 
And that means it is intimacy, not progress, that takes us there. It means that every time we reach for fig leaves, it's just another opportunity to drop those fig leaves and experience his love that deepens the intimacy of who we truly are. Every single time we fail, it's just another opportunity to become more the true self that he's made us to be. If we have not experienced ourselves as unconditional love, we've got more work to do because that is who we really are.